This night's from Trucker's Weather Forecast. The service is WRBA and that's the Virginia. And we are at uh, 19 to the hour. So let's do this. We'll come back with some regional weather here in a little bit. Dear Kitchen Display Center. Hello? Anybody hear me? All right, you know. Mm-hmm. Let's do this. Oh, man. They haven't changed that jingle yet. <laughs> Stereophonic. What is that? <laughs> Hello, Richmond. Again. The best personalities, like Alden Aero. I would suggest you do not try this with your records. Now, who's this on the phone? Thomas. Thomas what? Haskins. Thomas, where are you from? What do you want to hear tonight? 345-WRXL. Because good friends share. You are listening to live radio, AM 1140, WRVA Richmond. So the next time you turn on the radio, it'll make you happy. Richmond's number one. Number one. We'll make yeah, it man. a psychedelic 60s. <laughs> WDC operates at a power of 100 watts from an antenna located high atop the Fine Arts Building, located on the University of Richmond campus. Tune in and turn on the time tunnel. We will be back on the air soon and can continue to take your request at 345-0106. It's Rock 101, Richmond's new rock. Drugs are bad. Drugs are bad. I'm just kidding. What we're going to do right here is yeah. go back. We're going to go back. Way back. Oh, yeah, back why not? Time. How far back? When the only people that existed were troglodytes. We now conclude our broadcast day, but please join us at 6 a.m. tomorrow morning for another day of your favorite music on The Address of the Stars. Let's take the average caveman at home, listening to his stereo. You know, I haven't been able to get the people that run the Virginia AM, FM, TV, whatever, Facebook group to approve my messages that uh, I'm doing this podcast again. I don't know if I'm doing something wrong. Despite working on computers for a living, like this computer I'm sitting in front of now, I literally took apart and put back together myself. Despite being able to do that, I suck at social media. I am the worst. I don't know how Facebook works. I'm not good at it. So I keep posting updates that, hey, there's new episodes of uh, Give Me Radio or Give Me Death. And, you know, this week, like last week was uh, Bill Oglesby. This week, Paul Chagru. Uh, and I put them on there, and I just don't think they're getting approved. So nobody's seeing them. So I don't know if I have to make a personal appeal to the people that are running it or if they think I'm just, like, promoting my own stuff. I don't know what the deal is. Uh, so listenership... Not great. I was <laughs> I mean, I'm not expecting this to go flying to the top of the uh, Apple podcast charts or anything because it's a niche uh, <laughs> it's a niche podcast. But if you could like tell people uh, that, that this exists, I would be very appreciative. Again, not making any money off of this, totally a labor of love. This give me radio or give me death. My uh, love letter to Richmond Radio. My name is Chris Paget. Thanks for listening. Um, but please, tell a friend, smash that like button, whatever you do on the internet, because I suck at it. Um, Bill Oglesby was last week, and a thing that I failed to mention that I meant to prior to that episode, sorry, I just got a receipt in my pocket, you can probably hear that. Um, 
that I failed to mention was I went back and fixed the John Harding episode from season number one because um, I was spinning through and just kind of taking a listen to him, and I realized that it was a complete mess. Just the interview was fine, and John was great, and I think I held my own with him. Um, but the the interview was the the, the the actual audio was a mess, and I can put my finger on exactly why it was a mess. Uh, because I was drinking, like a lot. I not not like that it was interfering with you know my work day or anything, but it was definitely like get home from work, sun's down, time to drink. Um, and a few months ago, I decided I'm not gonna do that anymore. Um, and just like straight up cold turkey, like quit drinking. And uh, it was weird initially, like everything you hear about, like people who quit doing, you know, drugs and stuff. It was that first couple of weeks of like, well, what do I do? The sun's down. But now it's just like, it's not a big deal. I don't know. It's weird, man. And I didn't really have a whole lot of things to point at to say, oh man, I screwed that up or that could have gone better or I got an OUI or a DUI or like anything like that. There was none of that, but I heard that John Harding audio and I was like, oh, well, I screwed that up and it's probably because I was like half in the bag when I put it together. It's a long way of telling you that I went back and fixed the Harding audio. So if you want to go go back and listen to that one again. Uh, it makes more sense this time. You don't have to listen to the entire intro before the interview comes in. Oh, God. Anyway, that was a diversion. Uh, this week's guest is Paul Chagru. And I start him out with the first, and actually, before, sorry, there's a lot of preamble. My apologies. I went into this message, this interview, and I told Paul initially that I know his name and that he worked at Excel, and that's about all that I knew about Paul. And I actually started talking to him, and I was like, I really don't know anything about you. And he was like, oh, this is going to go well. And I had some misgivings about how this interview went, but I went, went back and listened to it and chopped it up a little bit. It was great. He's great. Like, what a nice dude. And just like... Wasn't there with like the facts and like these are the dates and this is what I did here, but just his overall just view of radio and the radio industry and and how it all works and how he navigated his way through it. It's a great conversation. So let's cut the preamble here, Charlie, and actually talk to Paul Chagru. And I started him out with the same question I start everyone with. Do you remember your very first air shift? Um... Not particularly. It was at WGOE, uh, which was an AM daytime only station that played album rock. Um, yeah. I had just <clears throat> come in from a station in Charlottesville and um, they had me doing the afternoons for this station. And I re replaced a very, uh, apparently a very colorful character named Jay August. Uh, and he oh. just one day disappeared. And no one knew where he was. Oh. And so for the next couple of years, <laughs> most of the people would ask me, whatever happened to Jay August whenever I would talk to them on the phone? So that was kind of a funny uh, you know, thing. And I never did get to see him or find out what happened to him after that shift. But uh, GOE was a very colorful place. You know, they had a lot of uh, colorful characters coming in and out of there because of the the nature of the station but um as far as the very first show no it, it was the station was in a really nice uh location in Carytown, 
Uh, it was the oh, wow. Cary Court Shopping Center that we were at. Yeah. And uh, it was just a nice, you know, stand-up studio and had access to albums. And we just played albums all day. So uh, it, was a, it was a fun station to work at while it lasted. How did you get into radio to begin with? Was it... Uh... Is it a, was it a passion from when you were a kid? Yeah, I basically went to college to learn to be a radio person. And they told me at Tech when I started there, um, they didn't even have a communications degree at the time. And they mm. told me, well, we're going to start one up and you can be one of the first graduating classes. But we just want to make sure that you're not doing this to become a DJ because we're not going to train <laughs> you to be a DJ. And, uh, but I, what were they going to train you for? Mostly television news and stuff like that. Okay. So, uh, that, okay. that's really what the major involved. And I ended up being the second graduating class in the communications major at tech and just started working at, um, you know, some of the stations around the Blacksburg area to start out. And then I got a job in Charlottesville and then I moved to Richmond after that. So. So did you grow up in the Richmond area or in Southwest Virginia? Where are you from originally? I'm originally from Michigan. And uh, oh I, wow, my parents moved to um, Virginia my senior year in high school. So I graduated in Virginia and they wanted me to pay, uh, they wanted to pay uh, in-state tuition. So they forced, sure. forced me to go to Virginia Tech. And, and then, <laughs> uh, you know, as soon as they did that, they moved to Connecticut. <laughs> so... Oh, wow. I ended up having to pay out-of-state fees anyway. So. <laughs> but that's how I got to go to tech. And I started working at Wuvit, which is a um, the student radio station there. It's a big alumni of uh, people who have been through Wuvit and did or did not actually graduate because of Wuvit. You know? But uh, I managed to be able to spend time at this student radio station and learn most of my radio stuff there and uh, graduated on time and all that stuff. So. What was the environment there like that prevented people from from graduating? <laughs> well, you would spend too much time on it. You know, you would get, sure. uh, there were so many people that were just so obsessed with radio. And here they finally got the chance to work in a real radio station, which is what Move It was. They had two stations, an AM and an FM. And, uh, uh, you know, so people would just spend way too much time there sometimes fall down the rabbit hole of, of records as opposed to books. Right. 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 So when did you end up at, at, what year was it that you ended up at GOE? Uh, that was 1979. And I stayed there for a year, but then they changed format to an oldies station. Yeah. Um, and it became go 16 for a couple of years, I think. And they didn't huh. keep me on as a, as a jock, even though I tried out, I tried to show them my top 40 chops, but they didn't, uh, they didn't go in for it. So um, I worked at a nightclub for about a year down in Chaco Slip, spinning tunes there. And yeah. then I got a job at XL102 right after that. Was there, was there ever a time in that year where you thought, all right, it's real job time. I'm done with this radio thing. Or were you pretty committed to? Uh, yeah, I was kind of committed to it. I was sending out tapes. I thought that's how you got jobs. And so I sent out a lot sure. of tapes. I never really got much response to them. But, uh, you know, I kept thinking that I would get back in radio. And I actually started working while I was at the club. I worked the overnight shift at a beautiful music station, W-E-Z. Oh. I didn't even use my real name on here. <laughs> 
so ashamed of the music that I was playing. But um, I did that until an opening came uh, open at XL102 and I kept, you know, bugging them about coming on to work there. That was a similar uh, track for me in terms of bugging them to work there. I actually sat in the lobby with a pizza in my lap for about an hour uh, in the VGO studio. Oh, yeah. Because I so desperately wanted to work in that building, and I knew they had an opening. Uh, and finally, the, the PD at the time, Bill, came out and said, all right, clearly you want to work here. Let's go eat pizza and talk about it. <laughs> so I, I know what that situation is. Appeal like. to the pizza uh, lover. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so let's you, talk about getting you there at VGO. Oh man, I started working at VGO about six months before deregulation, and they got consumed by the buzz. So it was a it was a brief shining career at uh, at VGO, but it was that was my first commercial radio gig. Huh. So okay. yeah, because I was there um, for um, a little while just before the buzz kicked in. I guess they I think they had yeah. Howard Stern on in the morning. That's when I was there. Yeah. You must have come right so, after I left then. You know, I think I left in 96. Um, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, the seat was still warm. Yeah. Yep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what did, what shift did you do at VGO? We'll get back around to uh, it. I started but. out in mornings and then I did middays and afternoons. I, you know, I was the program okay. director while I was there and, you know, uh, I kept trying to find a good spot for me and, uh, you know, it never really worked out. We, had a, another company that owned the station that was beginning to think, oh, we should be more like HFS in Washington. Yeah, HFS was the hot uh, modern rock station at the time. And so this company was uh, based up there. So they listened to HFS all the time. And that's what they wanted to do with VGO. But we were resisting that because we were uh, an adult music station playing Right. Album tracks and stuff like that and eventually they the ratings were like you know they couldn't um, wasn't sustainable anymore so they yeah. changed format so you but you bullied your way into to xl102 how did you start there what position did you start in um i guess the first job i had was seven to midnight um Mm-hmm. But I didn't do it for very long. I started doing mornings almost immediately. It was kind of wow. Yeah, it was strange transition, and uh, you know, I had never really done a morning drive. I don't think I'd done afternoon drive either. That was the very first time, and so they put me on with a news person, Joel Meltzer. He was the news guy, and so we did a really mellow kind of album rock morning show. And then they they took me off the mornings and put me on middays, I think, but then I was switched back to mornings on XL about two years after that. So in total, I did about six years doing mornings on XL 102. How old were you when you got that first morning shift? Um, what was that? Like 82. So yeah, I guess I was uh, 30, 32 years older. Okay. So you've been doing it for a little bit. Yeah. 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 So what was XL at the time? What was the what was the format? I know I, the format's kind of always been the same, say for the last, you know, five, 10 years, but what was the vibe in the building at the time? Was it the rock station in Richmond? What was, what was happening? There? It was the home of rock and roll. Sure. It was uh, a, a heavily um, consulted uh, AOR station and ours mm. were a hot kind of format back then. We were the only ones in, in Richmond for the longest time. There was no, uh, competition other than Q94. That was our main 
competition and that was a top 40 station so really kind yeah. of like apples to oranges but we still considered them our our main rival because they were playing rock and so were we and we were like the two rock stations in huh. and uh wasn't until vgo came along that things really changed as far as that went but uh, yeah i had been doing um you know, a lot of different shifts at XL one and two as a music director, I was program director mornings, middays and afternoons. And um, yeah, I guess it started back in um, the early eighties. And we saw a parade of program directors come through there that, you know, we changed consultants a lot. And whenever the consultant was changed, usually the program director was changed. So I saw a lot, of, I saw a lot of turnover in, in management there. And that was kind of, distracting but we were still able to put on a pretty fun station you know we thought of it as aor but we sort of tailored it to what we liked i think we played a lot more kind of modern rock bands than most aors did but uh, eventually you know the station uh, like vgo caved into the corporate you know uh company that said hey we need to make more money than we are now xl102 um I'm, I'm a few years younger than you are. So there was a transition period there that, you know, usually as a kid growing up in Richmond, you know, you listen to Q94 when you're a kid and then you discover classic rock and then you move on to alternative, which is what happened to me. But alternative hit when I was in that kind of formative, you know, 15, 16. So I kind of skipped the classic rock phase. So my time of listening to XL was was pretty brief. I almost went from top 40 straight to alternative. Right. What was the transition at XL like when, because, you know, when, when you were there initially, classic rock wasn't really a thing. It was just a rock station. Uh, and then I guess the classic rock stuff kind of started to filter in. And then all of a sudden, boom, alternative hits. What was the transition like for people like you who had been there for 10 years at that point? Yeah, it was really interesting how the music changed. And, and like I say, it really is, uh, it really was tied to who we were being consulted by. Uh, we yeah. were being consulted in the early 80s by Abrams, and they had what they called a superstar format, where um, they asked you to play like 80% current music and about 20% you know, older stuff. So we, that being the early eighties, we eventually got into a lot of the, you know, modern rock bands and new wave bands and stuff like that. But then it sort of changed and started going more corporate rock. I, I even think of that as a genre, corporate rock, you know, journey. Yeah. Uh, those kind of bands. And so it got to the point where uh, consultants were going more in that direction. Uh, like yeah. Real, you know, harder edged kind of, uh, Midwestern bands, you know, corporate. <laughs> That's a great way to rush play. and all of those. Yeah. Uh, we, we played them all during that whole time that I was there. We went through a lot of different format changes, uh, but we were always an AOR station. You know, we just changed how we presented it. And, you know, there, it always involved classic rock. You know, we always played some form of classic rock as oldies. Um, but uh, it was just the, total amount of new stuff that we would play that sort of changed over the years. All said and done from, from 82. And then you said you left there in like 90, when did you leave XL? Uh, 94. 
when did everything seem to kind of, you had a 12 year span there. Was there a point where things really seemed to kind of click where the, all the pieces fell together? Yeah, we had a couple of really good books um, in the early nineties, I guess it was, I think we were number one in the market one time and we were number one, we were the number one FM station in the market at one point too. But, you know, none of that ever lasted. We always had bad luck when it came to ratings and uh, trying to, you know, sell the station to management. So we were always at the mercy of the management saying, well, what you're doing now is not working. So we need to change it, you know, because we weren't this, you know, blockbuster station that was number one all the time. But, uh, you know, it was, um, it was a real learning experience to be able to, you know, sort of model the station on who the latest consultant and program director was and what they wanted to do. So I was usually the music director during all that time. And I was the <laughs> with, okay, we need to make these changes. Go ahead and put them in. You know. How can you give me an example of bad luck in ratings? You know, when there's no competition, you would expect the station to do better with rock audiences. And we usually did, but yeah. uh, you know, it, it frustrated me that we, lost out to a top 40 station, you know, when we were the only AOR station in town. So the only thing I could figure was that there just wasn't a big enough audience for a more sophisticated kind of uh, music station like that. And, you know, when VGO came to town, the the audience was split in half. So neither was able to do really well. Interesting. That's, you know, my perception, you know, outside looking in and, you know, now having the experience that I've had in radio, you know, you say consultant and my skin just crawls. <laughs> uh, but um, and you're the first person actually to even bring up consultants. So we'll talk about that really? a little bit. Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny. It's, it's, a, it's a dynamic of the industry that the trope with DJs is, well, most audiences don't know that we don't even pick the music. I also think that most audiences don't know that, you know, the station that you're listening to is probably not programmed by the people even in the building. It's consulted by, you know, this roving band of vultures, you know, who travel from market to market and say, no, do this. You know, so in hindsight, everything you're saying makes sense. But what I remember of XL 102 as a kid was it was a rock solid powerhouse unflappable radio station. So your perspective is really interesting. Well, we were very consistent. We put out a great sound on the air and we always had great jocks. And, you know, that's what was frustrating about it was that we weren't able Mm. to get the ratings that we thought we deserved, you know, Mm. but uh, you know, we did okay for ourselves. It was just, we, we didn't have leverage with management to say, no, we're doing the right thing right now. You can't change anything that we're doing. Did the station change ownership a bunch of times while you were there? Uh, once, yeah, and that was yeah, that was a big um, changeover because we went from a small uh, Raleigh, North Carolina-based owner who was very hands-on to Clear Channel, which was uh, oh. they owned just about half the stations in the country at the time, and it was a very uh, rough changeover. I'm not sure how much I should really say about it, but you know, it was very it was a very clear corporate takeover and a lot of people suffered because of it. And it was really sad to see, to see that happen when they came in. I was the program director at the time when they came in and uh, you know, they would do things like cut back people to part-time who had um, dependents who needed constant medical attention. 
So they didn't have to give them insurance, medical insurance. So they cut their hours back to uh, like 30 hours a week. So they didn't have to cover their medical expenses. And we had, uh, we actually had three full-time people on the air who had dependents with uh, physical needs. And so they were dropped out of the insurance and had to go buy their own insurance for all of that because wow. took over. So it was wow. a very stressful time when they took over. And you were in the driver's seat at that point. Yeah, I kind of felt bad about it. You know, there wasn't a lot sure. I could do about it because, you know, I was fighting for my job too. You know? How long did it take you? And were you purposely on a track to become program director or was it more just a matter of a matter of fact? that you ascended to BPD? No, you know, I, I kind of, uh, it was kind of advantageous to me that we had so many program directors because I would always apply for the job and then they would decline yeah. me and give me a raise. <laughs> <laughs> it happened almost every time a new program director came in because they, they didn't want me to leave. So, uh, but you know, it's awkward when you have applied for the person's job who gets the job above you. So, yeah, um, there was a little bit of that awkwardness. I think they actually expected me to quit, you know, because I wasn't given the job, but they ended up giving me a raise most of the time in order to, uh, you know, make me feel better about not getting the job. Why did you stick around? Did you pursue other other jobs when you was, would get passed over? Yeah, I was, um, <clears throat> well, I came really close to getting this job in Philadelphia one time. It was between me and another guy, and they hired the other guy. And six months later, the station changed format, and the guy was out of a job. Yeah. So felt yeah. better about not being <laughs> hired for that job, you know. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was, like I say, it was the only station in town that played what we played. And I had no intention of going to another station that didn't play this kind of music, because this is what I had gotten used to playing now. You know. And is that what you grew up loving? Like, were you working in a format of, you know, other than your easy listening, your brief easy listening overnight stint, you know, was that what you were into? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I have never once had to play Madonna or Michael Jackson or any of those artists on the air on my show because of yeah. I've always been able to stick with the rock oriented stuff. And uh, yeah. still applies today. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. I did about six months on a hot AC and I didn't hate it, but it wasn't my favorite. Otherwise I was in, you know, either AAA or, you know, alternative for my entire career. Oh, yeah. I, I feel very fortunate that that happened. Yeah, yeah, definitely. What, uh, what sealed the deal for you <coughs> at XL? Why'd you end up moving on? Uh, VGO offered me a job. Uh, like I say, it was a very um, stressful time when this new uh, company took over. And VGO had been on the air for a couple of years when that happened. And so the pressure was ratcheted up on me, uh, on my job personally. And uh, we had a new morning show that we were working with. And uh, I didn't really get along very well with morning show management wise. And so VGO at the time had <clears throat> a fairly highly rated morning guy. But he apparently graded on the nerves of a lot of the people in management there, and they wanted to get rid of him. Huh. So they offered me a job, and I was just like at the end of my rope a lot of times during the day because of the pressure from the job. And I was like, yes, please get me out of here. You know? <laughs> so I started doing mornings for VGO in uh, like 94, I guess. Do you feel like the audience moved with you? Uh, no, you know, I... Well, the two stations were so similar, you know, that it was, um, you know, I always thought of 
us having the same audience and people were just switching back and forth between stations mm-hmm. to get the best song, you know, because, uh, you know, what VGO was doing was not that much different from what XL had done, you know, f- from the beginning was playing yeah. current music and, you know, playing unusual older songs and stuff like that. Um, so you go to VGO to do morning drive. What was your, what was your morning show like? Was it, Hey, it's Paul Shagru in the morning or was it more music focused show? That's what I always did when I did mornings at XL. I just did a music yeah. show. In fact, the first time uh, they put me back on mornings was because the morning guy had called in sick and they had to bring me in and I didn't have any material to do a show. So I just sort of played excerpts from an interview show that we had aired the night before with Neil Young. And, you know, Neil Young was like one of my favorite artists. So I, it yeah. was easy for me to go, okay, I'm going to play you know, like 30 seconds of this interview and then we'll play some of his music. And it was that kind of show that I did for XL. Oh. And it was that kind of show that I did for VGO too. I even had a little feature I called Shagru's News where I played, yep. where I did like a two minute long um wrap up of rock stars uh you know almost like random notes in uh yeah magazine if you remember that but yep. uh, you know just little blurbs about what's going on in music and then playing a song out of that so i did that for um probably about a year year and a half at vgo and then things mm. changing there and they got very um concerned about the format itself and eventually put on Howard Stern while they had yeah. on this, you know, adult oriented format and it just didn't work. And, you know, it was just one of the many things that I've seen over the years that are hard to explain, you know, why you do that. Yeah. Yeah. The word incong- incongruous comes to mind. <laughs> yeah. Did jumping back for just a second, um, was XL when you did mornings, did they transition the morning show from you directly into Jeff and Jeff? Was there a, was there a crossover there? There was, it was before the station was sold though. Um, it happened yeah, probably about six months before the station was sold and I was doing mornings and they came in and replaced me and put me on in afternoons. Okay. It was shortly after that that um, I was made program director and then the state. Okay. So I didn't hire the morning team. I sort of inherited them, uh, Jeff and Jeff. You know, the friction between us and them was they always had the feeling was, well, we replaced him. You know, we're, we, uh, you know, took his place on the air. So why do we have to listen to him? You know, tell us what. So (laughs) it's just a lot of weird, you know, relationships like that that, that uh, got in the way. And that was a big transition for the listener too, going from, you know, a, a kind of mild mannered music centric yeah. to, you know, a, a, a big skits morning show. Right. Right. Yeah. And yeah. most, of, most of the time, what I did was I just bantered with the news person, you know, that was the most sure. personality that was into the show other than the music bits that I yeah. did. And then Jeff and Jeff were the exact opposite of that. So. Yeah, big personalities in radio. Yeah, that's for sure. So VGO, it doesn't sound like you were at VGO for long because the, the the ship was kind of sailing by the time you... Yeah, I think VGO... When you got there. on in like 92, maybe. And by 96, it had changed to, um, you know, full-on alternative with the... Yeah. I don't think VGO was the buzz that were there. That was a whole nother station. 
Yeah, the yeah the buzz the buzz consumed VGO essentially. There was, I did I did an air shift and the next day somebody else was doing my air shift. I ever I never actually got fired or officially let go. I just you know they were suddenly simulcasting and I had no place to be, so huh. I just didn't I just didn't go anymore. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if there's like a severance package floating around for me out there or what, but um, well, that so when. Me. When VGO went away, was that were you done with radio at that point, or did you keep going? No, I got a job at. Um, I was working like part time at W Lee, which was a classic rock station that started up but never really took off. And at the same time, I was working down in Norfolk at ninety six X. I was doing yeah, them. so I was driving back and forth between Richmond and and uh, Norfolk doing that for, I guess, about three or four months. And then the guy at the classic rock station in Norfolk offered me a job at the Fox. So that's when okay. I took that job and we moved permanently down there. That was, Oh, wow. Six. So yeah. I've been here for longer than I was in Richmond, believe it or not. So you're in Norfolk now? Yeah. yeah. I'm at a public station here. I went through a number of stations down here too. You know, I, yeah, at the Fox and then uh, the coast. And um, yeah, I've been working at this public station, WHRV, uh, for uh, 18 years doing my show out of the box where I play all new music every night on the show on the station. So it's a fun job to do. It's a, you know, a dream job because they let me play whatever I want to play. I get to design the show however I want it to be. Yeah. No consultants. Did you? <laughs> yeah, thanks for bringing that back up. So let's talk about consultants just a little bit. Were consultants there from the start in your radio career? Because I, I started you know, in the mid to late 90s, so consultants were always a thing. Um, were consultants new to you when you went into RXL? Yeah, well, that was the first experience I had with them. And, yeah, you know, they, um, for the most part, they were good because they worked with a bunch of other stations. So they had it down to sort of a science when they would come into town. And it seemed like a good thing initially. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they give the, the owner a little bit of, um, uh, they calm the owner down, making him think that, uh, you know, it's not just these crazy DJs who are running the station. It's actually being run by a, a respectable company, you know, and uh, that's how, you know, I think most managers thought about, you know, the staff of the station. So uh, consultants were the in-between, you know, the cushion between management and, and the uh, air staff. But yeah, when I first started working at XL, it was uh, Abrams, and then we went with Pollock, and then we went with um, Jacobs. Those are like the three yeah. Um, AOR um, consulting companies, and they all basically how did, did you, the same thing. How did you do uh, in dealing with them when, once you were the program director? Was it how was that relationship? Love hate? Uh, well, I dealt with them all during the time I was music director too. That was a big part sure. of the music director's job was dealing with the consultant and getting in meetings with the PD and the consultant, and sometimes the music research company. Uh, you know, I had a real problem with the music research that we did because uh, 
I never believed it. People hate that song. I'm telling you. We would do these auditorium tests on the library where we would play, yep. you know, 800 10 second clips to a group of two or 300 people all at the same time. And they would rate the song based on the 10 second yep. clip. And so we would get uh, these um, music uh, consulting companies come in working with the main consultant to say, okay, this is what, uh, this is the number that this song got. So you have to get rid of it because it's, the number is too low. Uh, you know, it was never really altering um, how often you played songs. It was more about getting rid of the bottom feeding songs that they wanted. Yeah. And I always had a problem with that. And, you know, the first time I was, um, exposed to it i didn't behave well <laughs> you know i basically <laughs> how can you go by what 80 people are saying on this one song you know how can you uh use that as a reason to just not play it ever again sure yeah yeah uh how long were you music director uh pretty much the whole time that i was there i think yeah the early 80s through um 94 so that's got to be in in my head that's got to be tougher to do especially on you know, something that's not top 40, like a rock station where personal, you know, personal preference and personal taste, I feel like is so important for that job. Yeah, it is. And I was in a, uh, I've done it many different ways. When I first started doing it, we got a computer to try to schedule the music and we would try to troubleshoot the computer uh, program. I had one program director come in though, didn't trust computers and so he took me, he took the, the library off the computer and made me schedule it by hand. Oh my hours God. A day, seven days a week. So I was always writing, you know, it took me two oh. hours or so to schedule one day, writing all the songs out. So I had to do that for a couple of years. And that was, uh, you know, that was really a learning experience to figure out how songs fit together and, you know, what, what sounds good and what doesn't sound good. You know, eventually we started having the computer schedule the songs and now computers actually play the songs, you know. And I feel like that's even more of a challenge um, with, you know, going back to the consultant thing for the millionth time. But, you know, getting that pushback from, like you said, the auditorium test and, you know, a song that you love and that you know that people love right. gets the boot because 80 people, you know, push the one instead of the five. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there was a lot of other companies that I dealt with that didn't really do it scientifically. They just set it up how they thought that it should go and then use the, you know, results that they got from it that were probably very flawed, you know, so sure, it was, uh, it's been a strange um, relationship that I've had with music um, research companies. So in doing this, I've spoken to a lot of people who are out of the industry entirely. I've spoken to some people who are still in the industry. Um, you're my first public radio person. So let's talk about that a little bit. What is the what is the dynamic of public radio like compared to commercial radio? Well, it's all about the fundraisers, you know, as long as, you yeah. can, uh, as, long as your show can continue to raise money when the uh, pledge drives come around. We try not to call them pledge drives anymore. They're membership drives now. But when they come around, as long as, you know, my show is getting donations because they keep track of how much money is coming in for each show. And uh, it's sort of like the ratings, you know, but we don't we don't have to go by the ratings here. We just go by who's 
raising the most money fund, fundraising wise. It doesn't always go that way. You know, if there's a show that's not doing that well, they'll sometimes we'll keep it on. If uh, there's a show that's doing well, sometimes they'll take it off. But for the most part, that's the yardstick that people use is how, how the fundraiser goes. And that was a big learning experience for me because I'd never been involved with that. I think we did a couple of uh, kind of radiothons, we called them at Excel, where we uh, took donations for charity. But, uh, you know, this is sort of that same thing where we're coming on and taking donations for the radio station itself. So. How has, has audience engagement over the years stayed roughly the same? Has it gone up? Does it ebb? Does it flow? Well, with the technology changing, I think it's really hard to tell, you know, because, uh, yeah. you know, we don't know what's going on online. And, uh, you know, obviously there are people, less people listening to the radio, but to what degree uh, are they going over to online? So we're trying to keep, you know, in both worlds right now. And that's that's another challenge is to just make sure that we're, you know, uh, doing digital uh, access as well as radio access for all the show. Yeah. Does your experience as a as an old dog in radio, does it you feel like it it helps? I would imagine it helps keep the the keel in the water, but do you feel like you need to open up more to, you know, younger people with, you know, more experience in the outside digital world? Or is it really firmly entrenched in this is radio and this is what we do? Does that question make sense? Um, is it still, I feel like this is almost the old, public radio is almost the old school way that radio used to be done. And is it still done that way? Yeah, well, that's how I designed the show that I do now is by how we used to do radio back in the 70s when it was just the AOR, you know, and a jock talking about the songs he's playing. And that's basically it. And so that's how I've, you know, I don't have any bells and whistles on the show that I do other than, you know, playing new songs that, you know, for the most part came out that day, you know. So (laughs) to me, that's that's the real magic of the show is being able to be immediate like that. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, there's a lot of, um, internet competition for this kind of show. And, uh, you know, I feel like as long as I keep it on the radio, then it's going to stay, you know, online too. So. How long are you going to keep doing this radio thing till you can't? (laughs) Uh, yeah. Until they start restricting what I can do, you know, as long as I have, free reign over what I'm doing, then I'm happy. You know, I, uh, this is what I worked for all my life and, um, to be able to do it for the past 18 years has been, you know, a a joy for me because I went through so many years, mostly in Richmond, uh, where I was restricted from playing certain things that I wanted to play. And, you know, my ideas weren't always necessarily listened to as far as, um, the final decision and stuff like that. So it was a frustrating time for me in Richmond, but it was also a very big time because we did a lot of uh, big time things, not just the uh, radio thoughts that we did, but we also, one of the highlights of my life was we took a trip to London. We broadcast live from Abbey Road Studios. Wow. We, it was during the Prince's Trust concert weekend or just before the weekend. So a lot of the artists who were playing at the, tr- at the concert came in to Abbey Road and were sitting down and being interviewed. So me and my co-host um, 
Dixie were there for uh, two two days. We actually got to go into Abbey Road, into their recording wow. studios, set up our morning show, and broadcast from there. So you know we were broadcasting like eleven in the afternoon to six o'clock in the morning in Richmond. And, uh, you know, it just felt so good to be able to walk into Abbey Road Studios as a working professional. (laughs) That was uh, a real trip. And uh, who came through? Who'd you get to talk to? uh, We talked to Alan Parsons. I think he was there. Um, uh, Who's the guy that organized Live Aid? Bob Geldof. Geldof, Um, yeah. He was there. We talked with Gary Brooker, actually, of Proco Harem, who just recently passed away. Whoa. yeah, I'm trying. To, oh, uh, Keith Emerson of Emerson Lake and Palmer came through. Okay, it was a you know it was a a wild kind of a two day frenzy. P- Phil Collins was there. Peter Gabe, yeah, stuff like that. So wow, wow. Uh, yeah, it's funny the little things that stick out over your over your career. Just being you're just being in Abbey Road is enough. You know <laughs> why even why even bother? You know who uh, asking who you talk to? You were in freaking Abbey Road. Right. And I had a similar situation in when I was in, I was only, it was, I was in Vermont for like a year and a half and, you know, and it's Vermont, like, you know, nobody comes to Vermont, but I'm backstage at a show and it's James Taylor's son on my right and James Taylor and Carly Simon's daughter on my left. And I'm like, holy crap. Like, it's not James Taylor and Carly Simon, but these are their kids. You know, we had yeah, we had Sean Lennon come through, and I'm like, you're Yoko Ono and John Lennon's kid. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, um, so you know, the, it's those experiences that, you know, are, you know, there's no other way to get those experiences. Yeah, it, it, it was also, um, uh, <clears throat> it all sort of came together um, around the Beatles, too, for some reason. Because when I first started working at XL, um, shortly after John Lennon had gotten shot and I heard about it. I I think I was out of work at the time I was working at the nightclub. That's right. And um, he got shot. And so I'm listening to XL all the next day because they were paying Mm. tribute to his music. And I was just going, God, I should be on the radio. I'd been off the air for about a year. I kept Mm. telling myself I should be on the, I should be doing those John Lennon tributes. And so I finally, uh, you know, got in at, saw the right person and they hired me about a month later and the first t-shirt I ever got from XL was a John Lennon t-shirt so it's, <laughs> it all fell into place I'm glad you're still at it um normally I don't do plugs but I feel like this is an important one to do how can people support uh your uh, radio station in Norfolk uh yeah it's whrv.org uh, that's where you can find it. If you Google out of the box, you know, that usually brings up WHRV and you can listen to the show. Uh, we got the show on demand on on the site, too. And there's plenty of, uh, you know, uh, instructions for how to donate. We're going to be doing an, another uh, membership drive, I think, a week from Saturday or two weeks. From Saturday. Yeah. So we'll be heavily into it then. All right. One thing about uh, public radio, you always have to go, oh, God, here comes another membership drive. (laughs) (laughs) More tote bags. I'm all full of tote bags. Uh, Paul, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. It was nice to get to uh, to get to know you. Yeah, you you too. And uh, sorry we didn't uh, meet up when we were at the same radio station. Well, Paul, we can't meet everybody. Uh, We really did just barely miss each other at VGO. And 
he probably would have been like, who is this kid? This is the problem. Get him out of here. I was, what was I, 20 at the time when I started VGO? Maybe it just turned 21. Paul's show is on WHRV in Norfolk, 89.5, online at whro.org. Donate, donate, donate. Keep Paul on the air. Keep people like Paul on the air. whro.org. Unlike me, Paul is doing this to, like, you know, feed his family. I'm just screwing around in my office. My name is Chris Padgett. This is Give Me Radio or Give Me Death, my love letter to the uh, Richmond Radio I grew up with. Thank you for listening. This show is uh, engineered and recorded and produced and all that good stuff by me, Chris Padgett. Thank you so much for listening. And tell a friend, would you?